Get more from your store with Safeway's Fresh Pass program and enjoy more services like unlimited free delivery and all your grocery needs. More exclusive perks like 5% off every day on your favorite organic or open nature items across the stores and more rewards that never expire. Get Safeway's Fresh Pass to enjoy exclusive perks, unlimited free delivery, and more. You can start your 30-day free trial today. Visit Safeway.com slash Fresh Pass for program details. Service available in select areas. Safeway.com slash Fresh Pass. This podcast may discuss topics graphic in nature and possibly triggering to survivors. We value the safety and well-being of all of our listeners. So please practice personal discretion. Now, enjoy the show. Hey, I'm Paige. And I'm Natalie. We're the hosts of the Murder Diaries podcast. We bonded over tacos and true crime after we matched on Bumble BFF. You know, like any normal millennial using an app to meet new friends. Every Thursday, we upload a new episode. In each episode of The Murder Diaries, we tell true crime one story at a time. One week it's my turn, and the next week it's mine. You still think it's in my head, but I'm walking with the dead. This week's case is one that has mystified a college community for nine years now. It's not a lesser-known case. Many of us have heard about it over the years. But in the last few months, there have finally been some updates and possibly some questions answered. This is the case of Faith Hedgepeth. Faith Danielle Hedgepeth was born September 26, 1992. She was born to her father, Roland, and her mother, Connie. Faith's parents did divorce within about a year of her birth, but she grew up near both of them between Warrington and Hollister, North Carolina. However, Faith primarily lived with her mom, Connie, and her older sister, Rolanda. Something very special about Faith was that she was a proud and active member of the Haliwa Saponi tribe, of which Hollister, North Carolina, is the tribal center. According to haliwa-saponi.org, the Haliwa Saponi are Native American peoples of the Northeast Piedmont region of the state of North Carolina. The name Haliwa is derived from the two counties of Halifax and Warren, which are the ancestral homelands of the Haliwa people, dating back to the early 18th century. The tribe consists of just over 4,000 citizens that live all over the U.S. and across the globe. Most of the members live in the very tight-knit communities on the border of Halifax and Warren counties with Hollister, North Carolina, serving as a tribal center. Hollister, North Carolina is located 25 miles from the areas and cities of Lewisburg, Roanoke Rapids, and Rocky Mount, North Carolina. It's also about 25 miles northeast of Raleigh, North Carolina. Since the 19th century, the Haliwa Saponi tribe has created schools and other institutions to preserve its culture and identity. Their common worship in Protestant churches, mostly Baptists and Methodists, has long acted to support community traditions. The people are long united and strong in their subsistence activities and oral traditions. I'm sitting here listening to you talk about the Haliwa Saponi tribe and Hearing the fact that there are 4,000 citizens of this tribe worldwide really puts it into perspective how precious her 
knowing her ancestors and the community traditions was to her. I can see why she allowed this to play such a big role in her life. And I I think it's important for us to embrace that in her story. It really was such a large piece of her identity and the identity within the community she grew up in. A little bit more about Faith comes from her obituary, which is posted on justiceforfaith.com. Faith was a lovely young woman, both inside and out. With a heart of gold, she befriended everyone she met. Her beautifully infectious smile illuminated a room and touched every soul there within. Her bubbly personality and lighthearted laughter made her a joy to be around. I literally started getting chills as we're reading that, just kind of like a raw recording feeling. It's so poetic and it really just shines a light on what kind of person Faith was and what she put first in her life. I especially love this quote too, because a lot of times we hear about the activities that victims have done. You know, they were a part of the community. They did this, they did this, but you don't really get an insight into their personality. And with this quote, we really feel like we know who Faith was. I really appreciated that we got to know so deeply about who Faith was on the inside from that quote as well. Another piece that really lets us get to know a little bit more about who Faith was and what an amazing human she truly, truly was is a quote from her friend, Yuna. And Yuna, recalling the first day that she and Faith met, says, she was a peppy, smiley face to calm my nerves. And Yuna, again, is recalling the first day they met, which was, I believe, on the first day of classes at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. As I mentioned a little bit earlier, too, Faith was extremely family-oriented, so she enjoyed any time that she got to spend with her family. And the beautiful thing is that they mentioned in their interviews that they enjoyed being with her, too, if not more than she did. Faith graduated in 2010 from Warren County High School in Warrenton, North Carolina. And she did really well academically in high school. She was an honor student and she also participated in a lot of different extracurricular activities, um, including being a cheerleader. Faith did so well academically in high school that she actually earned a Gates Millennium Scholarship, which is only granted to about 300 students a year, according to their website. The Gates Millennium Scholarship was established in 1999 thanks to a grant from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Its aim is to provide minority students like Faith was with an opportunity to complete an undergraduate college education free of charge. The awardees received funding for the full cost of attendance that's not already covered by any other financial aid that they may be receiving. And by cost of attendance, again, they really meant that. The cost of attendance, according to the website, includes tuition, fees, room and board, books, and transportation. And it may also include other personal costs as well. In their own words, the Gates Scholarship is a highly selective last dollar scholarship for outstanding minority high school seniors from low-income households. Each year, the scholarship is awarded to 300 
of these student leaders with the intent of helping them realize their maximum potential. So it is a big deal that Faith got this scholarship. It is not awarded to a lot of students and it is definitely something that would have been really important to assisting her in completing her education. And I think I really want to focus on the last little part of that quote, and you know, in their own words, helps them realize their maximum potential. This is a girl who had accomplished so much at such a young age already. To think of what she could have gone on to do is just heartbreaking when we hear what happened. For what little solace it may offer, in the fall semester of 2012, Faith was doing what you were mentioning you hoped she would have been able to do. She was really maximizing the opportunities that this scholarship afforded her. Um, and she was doing that as a junior, again, in fall of 2012 at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. UNC Chapel Hill was about 80 miles from home up in the Hollister Warrenton area. And she was majoring in biology. Faith had hopes that she was going to work one day uh, with children. And a couple of resources mentioned that maybe she had thought about becoming a teacher. But um, at this point, and her mother also recalls that as a biology major, she was hoping to someday become a pediatrician. Her obituary also mentions that she loved children and longed to work with them and make a difference in their lives in some aspect. I know we've talked a lot about hey, Faith got this scholarship and now she's working really hard as a bio major, which is definitely not the easiest major um, and how well she excelled in high school. But rest assured, Faith was also extremely active in her social life. And uh, while at UNC, Faith did join the Alpha Phi Omega sorority chapter there. That takes us to Wednesday, September 7th, 2012. Faith's best friend and roommate, Karina, came home to she and Faith's apartment after a night of being out, and what she walked into was a grisly scene. Faith had been murdered. There was no question that something horrible had happened to Faith, so Karina makes a tearful call to 911. The full eight-minute call is in the show notes, but we're going to play a bit of it here as well. Dara, 911, where is your emergency? I, um, I just walked into my apartment and my friend was just like, you're unconscious. Okay, what's your address, ma'am? I live at Hawkins at the view. Um, give, me, give me the address. I just, I just moved here. I'm about to get it. Oh, my God. It's, um, 5639 Old Chapel Hill Road in Durham. Okay, repeat it to me it. so repeat it to me so I make sure I've got it correct. Okay. Five six three nine old Chapel Hill Road. It's a Okay, what's sixteen oh two? Sixteen oh two? Yes. Okay. What's the phone number you're calling from? Two zero one three two one eight zero seven five. Okay, you say your friend is unconscious? He's unconscious. I just walked in the apartment and there looks like there's blood everywhere. Okay, listen to me. Okay, listen to me. Listen to me. Somebody's already sending me ambulance. Okay, I need to get some information from you and I'm going to, I'm going to help. I'm going to tell you how to help her. Okay. 
Okay. How how old is your how old is she? She's nineteen. Okay. I don't know. I don't okay. want to touch her, but listen to me. Is is she breathing? I don't know. You need to check and see. Is she breathing? Hey, I don't think so. I don't think so. Okay, listen to me. There's blood everywhere. There's what? There's blood everywhere. Okay. I don't know what happened. Okay, is she on her back or is she on her laying on her stomach? She's on her back, but like she, I think she fell off the bed because she's like off the bed. There's blood all over the pillows, like in the comforter. I just don't know what happened. Okay. All right, listen to me, all right? Is someone coming? Yes, I've got somebody coming. I've got somebody coming. I need for you to help her. I need for you to go up to her. We need to see if she's breathing or not. Okay? I think so. Okay. Eight minutes after that 911 call, the Chapel Hill police arrived. In the bedroom, they found a large amount of blood just throughout the room, and they found Faith naked from the waist down with a black t-shirt on, but it was pulled up over her head. The police pulled Faith's shirt back down and revealed her head and face, but moreover, it revealed that Faith had clearly sustained a brutal, fatal attack. Her beautiful brown eyes were surrounded by purple bruising. Her hair had been matted with blood and she had an indentation on her forehead that evinced blunt force trauma. The chief of police refers to what happened to Faith as a brutal slaying and, quote, the kind of violence that's hard to think about, end quote. Faith's mom got the news that Faith had passed while she was at work. She was in such disbelief. She said, no, you've got the wrong girl. It took some convincing, but Connie did come to understand that her daughter was murdered and she hung up the phone in tears. Given this news that Faith had passed, the family decides that it would be best to drive to Chapel Hill to go get answers. They went straight to Faith's apartment where they found the crime scene. Connie asked if she could please go in and hold Faith's hand so she knew she wasn't alone. They told her, no, and that it wouldn't be best if she saw Faith in her current condition. This is how and when they found out that Faith hadn't just simply passed, but had been murdered. They had no idea who could have done this. In the meantime, police search the apartment and gather evidence. They notice an empty rum bottle and they process it not just as evidence, but as a potential murder weapon. They collect DNA from that rum bottle and also semen that was next to Faith's body. It's believed that this DNA is from Faith's murderer. They also find a strange note on Faith's bed. The note is written on a white paper bag. It's kind of the size of a sack lunch bag and kind of looks like maybe that's exactly what it is or some type of fast food bag. And the note that had been written on it said, quote, I'm not stupid, bitch. Jealous. And it's in really big writing. What stands out the most with this bag, however, is that there's no blood on it. It makes them wonder if the bag had been placed there 
after the murder had taken place. And they immediately viewed this note as key evidence and a key to identifying the killer. And that makes sense given the brutality of Faith's attack. There would have been blood spatter everywhere. But the fact that this note was seemingly in pristine condition makes you wonder, when was it placed there and was it the killer? It also makes them wonder, why is the font so large and angry? And does this note evince passion and thus that maybe it wasn't so random? Maybe it was a known acquaintance that did this. With this idea that the note may have shown that it was somebody that knew her, police begin to look at those that are close to Faith. And they started with her roommate and best friend, Karina, the one who made the 911 call. Faith and Karina met freshman year and they were extremely close. Faith's dad described them almost like sisters. They were always together. Karina was a bit more reserved, introverted, and quiet in social situations in a yin and yang fashion to Faith's more bubbly and outgoing personality. Those close to the girls say that this is why their friendship worked. Karina explains to police that preceding her murder, Faith attended a sorority event at a nearby apartment complex. And then around 7 p.m., she left that event to meet Karina at the library and together the girls worked on a paper. This example is the perfect representation of both personalities at play here. Karina is in a quiet library studying and Faith is out socializing. Faith definitely seemed to bring that piece out in Karina. And another picture of that in a way is that they stayed at the library until about 11.30 p.m. and then they went home to get ready to go out. They went out to a local nightclub called The Thrill. They got to the nightclub around 12.40 a.m. They socialized and basically did what you do at clubs when you're 19 and in college. Karina started to not feel too well and Karina and Faith left just after 2 a.m. Karina says that once they got home, she got sick and was throwing up. The below neighbor recalled hearing them around 3 a.m. as well. Faith went to bed and Karina said that she stayed in the bathroom calling and texting people. So essentially, let's not sugarcoat it. Even though she's 19, they went to a club. Karina is drunk dialing here. So part of the drunk dialing and drunk texting is a bit of a hey you text that she um, sent to a UNC soccer player named Jordan McCrary. And the two ended up deciding to hang out and Karina left their apartment at 4.25 a.m. Here's the thing though. When Karina left, she left the front door unlocked. Why, you ask? Because at the time, they only had one key to the apartment and Faith had it that night. Another piece to this is that Karina may or may not have been expecting to get picked up by Faith from Jordan's in the morning and wanted to leave it for Faith for that reason. Maybe she didn't want to go through her things. There's a couple of different things surrounding this that are said in different resources, but 
the be all end all is that they only had one key at the time and Karina did not take it with her and then left the door unlocked because of that. Based off this information and timeline from Karina, officers decided that the perpetrator would have had to have entered the apartment after about 4.30 a.m. once Karina had left. That's where the sort of night portion of this timeline ends. And at 10 a.m., Karina said that she called Faith to get picked up, but got no answer. And now a word from today's sponsor. This is when she calls her friend Marisol, who is also a friend of Faith's, to come pick her up and take her home. Remember, it's a Wednesday, so classes are presumably in session. And because of that, Karina had a paper that she needed to grab from the apartment uh, that she was going to turn in that day on campus. When Marisol and Karina arrive, Faith's car was in the parking lot. They figure, you know, okay, she's home, maybe still sleeping. They call for Faith as they enter. No answer. They enter the bedroom and that's when they find her and call 911, like we spoke about earlier. News of Faith's murder spread like wildfire around the UNC community. Faith's friend, Yuna, is in disbelief when she finds out the devastating news. And she remembers something critical to the case. Yuna remembers that she had a voicemail from that night, the night that Faith was murdered. And at first glance, the voicemail had seemed like a bit of a pocket dial. And what's kind of funny is Faith was somewhat famous for pocket dialing and it's kind of charming in her memory. Regardless, the voicemail, again, seemed like a bit of a pocket dial. So it was garbled and a little staticky and there was music in the background. Because Yuna had regarded it as just another one of Faith's pocket dials, she deleted it before she knew Faith had passed. Here's the best part though. She calls her cell phone provider and they help her get the voicemail back. And we're talking 2012 here. Not that it was the Stone Ages, but technology has come a long way in the last almost 10 years. Once she gets the voicemail back, she gives it over to police. They take note that the timestamp of the voicemail is 1.23 a.m. Faith would have still been at the club, and this was mere hours before she was murdered. It's interesting to police in hindsight, and that it was a recording of some of Faith's last moments before her murder, but they regarded as Yuna originally had a pocket dial. In effort to find more evidence to work with, police get a warrant to gather Faith's cell phone records. This is when they find a new lead. Faith had been texting with two different guys after they got home from the club. One of the guys, Brandon, is in a casual, intimate type of relationship with Karina. Faith was asking him to come over and be with Karina while she was sick, saying, Hey, B, can you come over? Karina needs you more than you know. His response was, Who is this? Brandon tells police that he had been at the apartment earlier that week and even slept on the couch. What's more is he explains that he was at the thrill the same time the girls were. But of course, he held his innocence. His DNA was swabbed and it wasn't a match for what was found at the crime scene. The other guy Faith was texting that night was her ex-boyfriend, Ty. She texted him around 3.43 a.m. That was the last text that she ever sent. Now, Ty was an older fellow UNC student and he was known to be a bit of a jealous boyfriend. Ty arrived to the police department 
at the same time while her parents were still there and acted pretty normal, gave his condolences and hugs to her parents. He even told them honestly that Faith had texted him in the early hours of that morning that she'd passed. And in that text, Faith was essentially professing that she still had feelings for him and wanted to get back together. The text reads, quote, I know you're probably sleeping, but I just wanted to let you know that not a day goes by that you don't cross my mind. And I know that it will be like that for the rest of my life. Sorry for being in my feelings, but hey, we all have feelings. What's interesting is this text is despite the fact that they hadn't really been talking or seeing each other much since they broke up. When her dad sees this text, he immediately says, that's not faith. The text doesn't have a lot of punctuation. And she especially in the text didn't punctuate your Y-O-U apostrophe R-E. It was just written Y-O-U-R-E, no apostrophe. According to her dad, she was pretty serious about proper punctuation, and he really feels like she would have never texted like that. Ty holds his innocence and gave a DNA sample as well and was also not a match for the killer. In pursuit for more answers, law enforcement turns back to Karina. They discovered that on July 11th, Karina had filed a restraining order against a man named Eric. Karina had done this after some encouragement from Faith to do so. Eric was an ex-boyfriend and Karina and he had broken up right around the time of Faith's murder within a few weeks. And he was known to have violent outbursts. I mean, he had one just a few weeks before that resulted in two doors being kicked off their frames in the girl's apartment. According to chapelboro.com, Eric told Karina that he hated Faith and that he would kill her, Faith, if Karina didn't get back together with him. Police were told that Eric resented Faith because he considered her to be a barrier to his relationship with Karina. What's interesting is Eric actually lived in the same apartment complex as the girls, and he was one of the first people at the scene after the commotion had begun when it became a crime scene. Eric walked right up to the crime scene and was just looking around and then went straight to the TV cameras. He says in one news interview, I mean, Faith is one of the sweetest people in the world. I can't believe anything like that. I'm still in shock. Like, it's just unreal. Another quote, I'll be honest, whoever did this deserves to burn. This is in stark contrast to what we actually know. Faith's friends have made it clear that it was well known that Eric did not like Faith. Suspicions rose when they found that Eric posted a strange post the day before Faith's murder, September 6th. The post reads, Dear Lord, forgive me for all of my sins and the sins I may commit today. Protect me from the girls who don't deserve me and the ones who wish me dead today. This post was obviously a red flag and he was brought in for questioning. Police took Eric's DNA, they searched his car, and they confiscated some clothing and documents. Ultimately, Eric was cleared. His DNA was not a match to what they found at the crime scene, and they didn't find anything linking him to Faith's death. Months and years pass. The police investigation does not stop, though. July 2014, Chapel Hill Police released documents to the public in effort to point people to what they felt was important to know and to get help in the spots that they felt that they needed 
public help and interest to get more information on, or maybe even generate a new lead. One of the items that was released was the 911 call. Karina's words were thoroughly examined and ridiculed. They wonder, why did she use the word unconscious when there was a lot of blood? Meaning, why wouldn't she have just said, hey, she died? But I feel like her words were going to be picked apart no matter what. Because if she had said, my friend's dead, they would have said, she just got home. Why did she think she was dead? Like, I feel like they were just always going to pull her words apart. And they, they definitely did. There are so many opinions about why she specified so many times that she had just walked in as well. She does say it several times in the 911 call. And I'm not going to entertain dissecting all of her words here either. She has been cleared. But this is just important to the case because it's what police and investigators wanted to know and the public wanted to know at the time and were considering at the time. And it's also important to note that in the court of public opinion, they saw her as having some sort of involvement in Faith's murder. At the time, the the jury was out, definitely. Faith's friend, Yuna, the same friend that got that voicemail, said that Karina and Faith did have some tension going on at the time, actually, and that Faith had asked Yuna if she could move in with her the week before she passed. Yuna says she still wonders and does not know what was going on that made Karina and Faith's living situation one that Faith wanted to leave. Faith never really said anything to anybody, including Yuna, about this situation. Uh, But according to Yuna, it did seem that Faith was tired, stressed, and seemed a bit worried. With Karina in a bit of a hot seat at this point, a handwriting expert was called in to examine the note that was found on the bed and they compared it to Karina's handwriting and it was very clearly not a match. The E in the note is like a C with a dash through it. So it's a two-stroke E. Karina's E's are a three-stroke traditional uppercase E. Those close to Karina say that losing faith And all this backlash from the court of public opinion totally broke her. An officer in an interview made sure to state for ID Discovery that Karina has been cooperative with this investigation. And despite the heat on her, she's never been named a suspect. In January 2016, Arlo West, a forensic audio and video expert, examined the pocket dial voicemail that Faith had left Yuna. He enhanced the audio and you could clearly hear two male and two female voices. You hear a female in distress saying things like, help me, get off me. You hear one of the females threatening the other female and saying, quote, I think she's dying, end quote, with a response, quote, do it anyhow, end quote. The names Eric and Rosie are also picked up. All of this is garnered from what was a bunch of garbled noise before. Arlo believes that it's from around the time that Faith was murdered, and it may prove that multiple people were involved. The issue with that theory, though, is the 1.23 a.m. timestamp, because as we remember, at that time, they were still at the thrill. So with that, he starts to look into the technology behind voicemail timestamping, and it's found out that Faith and Yuna's 
types of phones both had issues with time stamping in voicemails. Moreover, the cell towers that were used were glitchy at best. And so he believes that the timestamp is actually incorrect. Police have, of course, heard this audio and they currently hold that, you know what, the timestamp is correct. And if it is involved at all with Faith's murder, perhaps it was a fight at the nightclub that was recorded that maybe then led to the murder, if it's involved in the murder at all. To continue the investigation, investigators turn to something so mind-blowing and cool. They reach out to Parabon Nano Labs, and this is a lab that takes DNA from a crime scene and creates a 3D image of what the suspect might look like based on phenotypes, and it's called phenotyping. It's basically a predictive digital sketch based on what the DNA says. Obviously, environment has a lot to do with what comes of our DNA's mapping, but this is a really cool start. After a month, the image was complete. The phenotyping process painted a picture of a man with olive skin, dark hair, brown or hazel eyes, and of Latino descent. The sketch was released for the first time on ABC's 2020 in late September 2016. Despite this helpful image, there weren't any major leads that happened right away, or at least that we know about at this time from our resource material. So it stayed as it was. And that is until five years later, this year, September of 2021. On September 16th, Chapel Hill Police announced the arrest of Miguel Enrique Olivares. He's 28 and he's from Durham, North Carolina. And he was arrested for Faith's murder. At this time, he faces a first-degree murder charge and he is being held without bail. Again, we know that Miguel is from the area and we also know from source material that it was DNA that led investigators to be able to link him to the murder. I do want to note on a personal level that when I looked at the sketch that was produced from the phenotyping process by Parabon Nanolabs, and I look at the picture of Miguel when he was arrested, the foreheads are very similar. And of course, Miguel does follow suit with olive skin, darker hair, That's just me, of course. You guys can Google and check it out for yourself. Other than that, Miguel was from the area and that it was DNA that led them to his arrest. There really isn't more information around the full story of this arrest. Chapel Hill Police Chief Chris Blue said at a news conference, patience will be asked of you. The police chief added, This story will take time to completely unfold. This investigation is not complete. Our work is not done. So with that, we will definitely hear the Murder Diaries be staying tuned for future updates. We want to leave you with a quote from Connie Hedgepeth, Faith's mom, to end this episode. And Connie says, We don't want anyone to forget her smile. She was a beautiful girl. She was my baby. And that's where we'll leave it for this week. 
Until our next episode, you know where to find us at the Murder Diaries Pod on TikTok and Instagram, at the Murder Diaries Pod at gmail.com and the Murder Diaries Podcast.com. And if you haven't already, go ahead and rate, review, and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It helps us keep the good content flowing. Your five stars mean everything. And until then, stay safe. Bye. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.